It's got a soul, this hero farm. It falls asleep inside my arms. We walk the fields under the stars. But love is here in Goldshaw Farms. Welcome to Goldshaw Farm. I'm your host, Morgan Gold. On each episode of our podcast, we bring you stories of people who are homesteading, farming, and chasing their dreams. And right now, I'm just standing out in the pasture, listening to the coyotes. You know, I often remark about how lucky I feel like I am that we ended up here in Peachum, Vermont. Um, it's, It's just a tremendous community in this town and in this area. You know, when we were researching where we wanted to end up, and, and what farm we wanted to buy and where we wanted to live, the town actually didn't you know, factor all that much into our thinking. We knew we wanted to live in Vermont, but we didn't know exactly which region or which part or which county or, or which town specifically. And, and so we ended up here in Peachum, Vermont, uh, purely by accident. But I'm really thankful that that happened because just our neighbors are awesome. The people who live around here are awesome. The friends we've made are awesome. And I just feel really lucky with the whole thing. I'm not sure if you guys can hear this, but as I'm recording this now, the coyotes have set off the roosters. So there's there's definitely a little bit of background noise here for this uh, podcast intro, but but I think it's fitting for the theme here. <laughs> um, and, you know, of the friends I've had, and I've had a couple of friends on the podcast so far, there's a lot of other folks who, who are in this area, but... You know, I had this one friend who I actually, you know, even a couple months ago, I ended up making a YouTube video with where um, he had a a Scottish Highland cow that uh, had actually broken free. Actually, I think I think it was actually a a steer, Um, but it it broke free and escaped his pasture and went missing. And so me and this friend, we ended up spending a lot of time looking for the cow via steer via drone um, through the, the woods of Peachum. And it was just kind of an awesome experience. I, I did it for a day. Tom, my friend, he, he spent several days looking for his cow. And I'm not going to spoil the story for you. Um, I'll leave a link for the video in the show notes. But, uh, um, you know, Tom in and of himself is just an incredible guy. Because he is like this amazing renaissance man. You know, he, he is our town clerk. He has a cattle farm business. He helps run his family's farm business. Uh, he does maple syrup. He does um, sheep shearing. He has a, a draft horse. And he's just got a very interesting farm operation. And so I figured today it'd be great to just sit down with Tom and, and share a conversation with, you know, him and me and we just talk about farming because you know when tom and i hang out that's generally speaking what we end up gravitating the conversation to um so so here it is my conversation with tom gallinet of foxfire revival farm I grew up in uh, northeastern Connecticut uh, in a town called Ashford, which is uh, better known as a quiet corner of Connecticut. Um, you know, it's kind of a unique little bubble of agriculture surrounded by um, suburbs, if you will. 
but um, we often were picked on with uh, every time we would play soccer against another team, instead of shaking our hands, they'd hold two thumbs upside down and they would pretend to milk an udder of a cow. <laughs> so Ashford was known for having more cows than people. <laughs> but now, now how'd you end up in Vermont? Um, so we, yeah, that's kind of a crazy story. Um, you know, grew up in Connecticut, went to UConn, transferred to University of Southern Maine, met the love of my life, and she went to uh, grad school at Antioch in Keene, New Hampshire, but we wanted to live in Brattleboro because we just thought it was more our scene. Um, and we wanted to farm, and we really had a lot, both had a strong passion to, uh, to farm. Um, and so we knew we wanted to do it in Maine, West Virginia, where Hannah's from, or Vermont, where I have um, family history going back to about 1806. And we uh, we were up at a family reunion, and my cousins, they heard our plans, and they said, well, wait a minute. They called us up into one of the campers. It's kind of a redneck campground, a bunch of various trailers, and it's really a great time. Here, here in Peachum. In Peachum, yeah. yeah. And they said, hey, you know, we, uh, our kids aren't interested. We're never going to sell the farm. You're never going to own it. But why? you don't have to start from nothing. You can come and help us out. And we can help you through the, the learning curves. And it was a really a nice transition. And so we just started looking for jobs and made our way up. Wow. And, and so now, how long have you been there at that farm? Uh, since 2013. Yep. In January 2013. And, and what do you do there today? Uh, so right now we hay, um, we sugar, we pasture livestock. It's about 120 open acres, um, of which maybe 100 in hay, 20 in pasture. We have alpacas, we have some uh, Scottish Highland cattle, we have one Angus left, and we have a draft horse, which we do a lot of agrotourism, but also some specialized logging uh, when we have a neighbor with a sawmill, so if you want a cherry board, we can go pick it out without making a mess. <laughs> so how do you get into having a draft horse? Because that's not, like everybody does alpaca or cattle. Oh. I mean, that's that's normal, but draft horse, that's different. Well, this is, this story is going to get a little longer than most. That, all right, well, I was in Maine, and all I wanted to do was to raise sheep. Sheep are my passion. I've only owned one sheep. And I wanted to put it in the freezer. His name was Curly, with these enormous horns. And uh, I got him to eat. But my cousins fell in love with him, and they said, you can't eat Curly. <laughs> so, so the only sheep I ever had was a failed success. But uh, then I, re I wanted to stay with that model. So I became a sheep shearer, and I went to school in Maine to learn how to shear sheep. And... For a few years, I sheared sheep professionally. And why I did that was when you call a sheep farmer and you say, hey, I want to learn about sheep farming, it's like going over to your friend's house on Christmas Eve. Um, you know, everything is neat, tidy, tools are put away. It's not a real representation. They're really just showing off their farm. But when you're the sheep shearer, everything is exactly how it was the day before. They don't do anything special for you. So I was really able to see the working dynamics of all these small farms and learn from that. And so I was down in uh, Townsend, Vermont, right on the Newfane, Townsend, right on Route 30, it was the West River Stables, it was called. 
And uh, they had some Shetland sheep. One, my favorite one was Shat Sally. She was this really cute, adorable black thing. And uh, so I always called and I said, hey, I'll share your sheep if I can pick up Sally for a picture. She weighed about 40 pounds and it was always like my Christmas card was like hugging Sally. Well, so we started this friendship and Ben, Sarah's boyfriend at the time had, I think they're still a boyfriend and girlfriend, they might even be married. Sarah and Ben were the farmers. Yeah, yeah. they, uh, Ben pulled horses in fairs and he had these big draft horses and I just, Ben and I got a liking to each other and we just would go out and hang out with the horses after I'd shear the sheep and then I just lived in Brattleboro down the road, so I'd sneak up, and he said, hey, Tom, you know, why don't you come help me every night train the horses, and I'll teach you in trade. You'll learn how to drive horses, and there, every night for a summer, I was up hanging out with Ben, uh, probably drinking too much beer, and hanging, <laughs> running through the woods of Vermont with these giant draft horses. And so the time came, his uncle sold, had some horses to sell, and I bought them and moved to Peachum. It was a very uh, irresponsible decision. <laughs> there was a lot, of, a lot of chaos in the beginning, but uh, I've come to be, to love horses and love to be a horseman, and you find out your history, you know, as you, your family comes around for the holidays, um, my great-grandfather, um, John Arthur, Arthur John Gallinat, made his living by breaking Belgian draft horses. So it's kind of like already in the... Runs in the family. Runs in the family without even knowing it. And now, now when you guys first moved here, too, like, Hannah was pregnant and you had a couple uh, horses. Like, how was that whole oh, experience? It was insane. It was totally insane. So we moved up here. Uh, Hannah was teaching... I moved up in January because I got this job teaching Barry. Hannah was teaching down in Brattleboro, and we would just see each other on the weekend. And she, the, a month after I moved up here, we found out she was pregnant. And wow, there was like an amazing amount of guilt. Like, oh, like I should go back to Brattleboro. But there's a lot of camaraderie about this, starting this new chapter. A lot of turmoil emotionally and, you know, between us as a couple, just trying to figure things out wild time and then in the middle of it there's these two horses that don't have any fencing it's the middle of winter water's freezing there's no electricity in the barn and uh there's nowhere to put them so i just made what i called a scare fence from like old broken down lumber <laughs> just like piled it up and held it and it, you know what it worked all winter and i went through a lot of batteries and headlamps but uh we've we got through, and I have an amazing family that was willing to put up with the scare fence, batteries, headlamps, to do the chores when I could go down and see Hannah and our unborn Josiah. But, um, and then she moved up a week before our wedding, and we got married a week later, and we lived in one of these campers in the Redneck Campground all summer. We put an offer in on a house. We were supposed to close in April, but it was a foreclosure. It took till August, so... All summer we lived in this camper cooking on a Coleman grill. <laughs> and poor Anna's like eight months pregnant. <laughs> She's such a trooper. <laughs> There's these giant draft horses. <laughs> the camper and draft horses. That just seem like seem to go together in a weird way. The whole thing was like too, it's like you couldn't make this up, you know. It's just a hilarious and 
So then we finally closed on our house, this 200 year old farmhouse that had no ceilings. There was water damage. So the ceilings were all crumbled drywall on the floor. Plumbing didn't work. Electricity needed to be rewired. And it was full of mold. And we had one month. Uh, we thought we would have had all summer to fix it up. We had one month before Hannah was due. We closed on August 23rd. Hannah didn't step foot in the house for three weeks after she just bought a brand new, her first house. Uh, because of the mold and it took that long to get ready and uh, one week before Josiah was born uh, she spent her first night there and wow and, the, and then there were still the draft horses with a scare fence <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy yeah and, and now the draft horse today that you have like, yeah what do you do with him like beyond you mentioned the logging but you also mentioned agritourism what is that so um I I pull people, you know, the irony of agriculture today is that I think there's more income to be made from hospitality than from the work itself. And um, that's a harsh reality for somebody who has a passion for farming, but I think it's a, a reality that needs to be made if you want to be successful as a diversified farmer. And so the draft tour started off uh, long term to help with some current use plans, to work with foresters, to have a better... Uh, logging management for the farm um, and it turned into a sleigh ride and wagon ride business so now I offer sleigh rides I have a website um, foxfirerevivalfarm.com and people from all over the country and the world uh, I just did one the other day from Nashville Tennessee I day before from New York City and you know it's really I call it the most authentic sleigh ride in Vermont or because it's the only one where you're stepping into a 200-year-old barn built by the same family that's there today. And cedar posts are holding it up um, that were put there by people that I can tell you dear stories about. And, you know, it's just a, it's a real working farm. There's not bright, shiny John Deere tractors. There's a mishmash of equipment that makes do when we need it to work. Um, and then we work, you get to experience a true working farm through the pastures, through the fields, through the working sugar bush and the sugar house. And that's kind of a unique um, experience rather than just being near a ski area, if, if you will, which definitely has its place. It's, uh, well, talk, talk a little bit about the sugaring that you guys do, because I know for people who are not living in the northern part of the country, especially not living in, in northern New England, yeah. that might be a very foreign concept. Yeah, uh, so sugaring is gathering maple sap during the spring and boiling it down um, into maple syrup. And so it's extremely labor-intensive. You know, in 2009, uh, we did it with buckets. We had about 700 buckets. And so you drive a tractor, two-wheel drive tractor, down into the woods, spinning the whole way, getting stuck, using boards and shovels to get yourself out, bringing you know, three to five gallons in each hand. So, you know, that's 25 to 40 pounds um, at a time and dumping it into a tank and boiling it down. Um, and so that's, uh, it's a lot of work, but along with that is an enormous amount of camaraderie. Um, there's a huge Northern culture to sugaring, which I'm new to, because I grew up in Connecticut, but, um, I'm fortunate that my family has been part of it for so long, and so I've kind of been accepted in some sense. But um, 
in the springtime is my favorite time of year. All winter, we sit locked up behind closed doors. It's like not exaggerating, negative 35, negative 40. Uh, Hannah bought a car once from Pittsburgh and the antifreeze froze and the plastic reservoir cracked and like, so we couldn't even have, I mean, it really gets that cold. And so we all hunker down and hole up and get cabin fever. And the first time there's a smokestack boiling and you see the fire coming, the whole world opens up and all everyone opens their doors and you have people you haven't seen in two years, but you know they're lonely terribly lonely and they desperately come into your sugar house and you have the best time in your life and you share stories and you know they'll bring whether it's a six-pack or they'll bring a casserole or they'll just bring their friends and it's a really great time a new beginning for the year uh, and so that's really my favorite part about it you know the labor is one thing but you overlook all that when you have that community. Well, it, it, it's funny you should say that, how it is such a community event. And I, I didn't, until I moved up here, I don't think I fully appreciated it either, where it's like, yeah, the winters here are really tough. Oh, it's <laughs> terribly isolated. <laughs> and, and exactly. And so once things start to melt and once the sap starts to run and everybody's just sort of getting together and people are sharing infrastructure to cook and boil and do all that stuff and, and just... Yeah, it becomes like a bonding time suddenly yeah. out of nowhere. It's great. Yeah, and it's so fun. And then like everywhere you go, you go to the West Barn at Quick Stop or Marty's, you better plan an extra 15 minutes because that cup of coffee you're getting to run is now a cup of coffee to discuss what, you know, what the what are you doing? How's it working? What's this new technology? And it's it's really fun. Um, and that camaraderie and that community overcomes any depth of winter. I mean, <laughs> Well, and, and, and how much uh, like syrup, I guess, are you guys producing? We produce between four and 500 gallons a year, um, depending and, on the year. And so for people who are listening to this, right, so you do the math, right? That's 35 to 40 gallons of we ever sap. We have 52 gallons 50, of sap. Okay, yeah. so you're doing not necessarily sugar, but like red maples. Oh, and... uh, we do straight sugar maples. Yeah. It's just, that's like the perfect quantity is oh, right, yeah, right, 40 right. to 1, but seldom, especially when you have a lot of snow in the woods or rain that oh, it gets snow in the bucket yeah, yeah, yeah it gets yeah. diluted and so but yes i mean so we're, we're looking at 50 or sorry twenty thousand gallons of fluid that runs through the evaporator wow and uh we were doing just wood so we and on the old rig which was english tin uh we used to burn about 27 cords of wood a year um that's a lot of wood for anybody who hasn't touched firewood <laughs> <laughs> um we bought a new evaporator in 2011 with a USDA loan, um, which was amazing. If anyone ever, it's a 2% loan for farmers, and it really, it was, allowed us to advance the pipeline and then allowed us to get this new efficient rig. And by going to pipeline, we were able to double our productivity with the same amount of labor and reduce wood to 18 quarts. So, um, about a, th a third less wood, and therefore pay off that loan uh, three times faster than the anticipated payoff rate. So it's really a great program for anyone who's looking to expand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it is definitely a good thing if you can take advantage of it. Um, so, so now, what are you doing with your cattle? So the cows are um, a, an experiment. So I read about the University of Michigan did the study on AMP, 
grazing, which I think is agricultural management practices grazing. I'm not exactly sure. Check the acronym. Manage grazing programs, though. Right? Yeah. And so it's like this hit it hard, let it rest. And so what I'm trying to do is produce uh, carbon negative beef. Um, I do see the future of, of beef production changing. I see the future of meat production in this in the world changing with with climate change moving forward the way it is. But it, um, being that we are a hunter-gatherer uh, society, if we could produce um, meat products in a carbon-negative way, um, I'd like to do so. And I think um, there's been a lot of studies in mimicking bison or reindeer um, where you kind of hit the grass hard and then have long periods of rest. So you kind of overgraze it, but then give it long periods of rest. And um, and what that does is it allows the soil to actually absorb some of the extra carbon from the plant during that um, quick growth period and therefore sequesters it out of the atmosphere. Um, and so I have four Scottish Highlanders and so the plan is to raise uh, grass-fed, unfinished, so we'll never use any, any grain other than as a, uh, a device to get them back in the fences. <laughs> Um, There's a great YouTube video out there if you guys ever want to hear that story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so grass-fed, unfinished, carbon negative, and then uh, not just to feel good, to sell it to people so people feel good buying it, but an actual do good that um, this is something that I believe strongly we need to change, and I'd like to do so in a way that's uh, also economically uh, viable as well. That's awesome. Yeah. And now, so as you think about your farm, right, you've got like all these different pockets of activity. So oh, it's yeah. not just one enterprise. It's the whole yes. deal. And so that's a constant conversation. So we're we're an LLC model. So we have, uh, there are three parcels of land that are owned within the family. Um, different deeds, but a, um, an LLC model with shareholder. Um, and so what that does is it leaves a lot of room for uh, discussions. And we all have to talk about what we want to do and this kind of the holistic farm model is everyone puts their best idea forward and then we compromise and and so the beef works because we have a lot of marginal pasture that that's not productive in hay and we were paying um for fuel tractor time to, to manage it just to keep it as open and so this is a way we can keep it open but also turn it into dollars and cents um another product we're working on is uh growing canola to uh, press for biodiesel, pelletize the cake for livestock feed, pelletize the biomass for a pyrolyzing pellet stove, and then maybe possibly gather the the wood gas to burn in our propane devices. And so it's like this one long term. And so these are all like people's interests and moving these ways, you know, one person wanted to do solar, another person wanted to have windmills. And this was the kind of the practical way of how we can move forward as to take advantage of the resources we have um, with the least amount of um, investment. Because obviously finances are something we always have to be discussed on the farm. Right. Now, in terms of, of thinking about like getting into a new enterprise, how do yeah. you go about doing that? Like given your back, like do you have like a whole background and education that you've already gone through? Or do you sort of just pick it up as you go? Like how does it work for you? Well, yeah, I mean, so my degrees are in geology and education. And I guess the geology helps in farming. You know, you, it just happens, I suppose. But um, 
it's really a lot of numbers and so right now we're debating Christmas trees and so we can get um, $26 a tree times 1200 trees per acre um, every 8 to 10 years versus the $200 an acre we get currently for hay so it's so we, we're debating, yes, we can get more dollars per acre. However, we have this eight to 10 year gap where we're spending money on maintenance and mowing, etc. It's also, I'm not sure how good it fits into our carbon negative model. Um, and so this is just a real life example that we're still at the table talking about is, do we want to invest in Christmas trees and breaking down how much is it gonna to cost to plant, maintain, harvest, and what's the real take home? But the $26 is not really what you take home. It's probably more like $12. And is that worth it um, to lose that ground that's hay now? But it also could be, you know, food crops. It could be pasture for more livestock. Like, But once it's Christmas trees, it's Christmas trees. And so there's this, you sit down, you get on your notepad, and you run through each step. Um, not just the dollars and cents, but also the long-term ramifications. And then you sit around and... Uh, with a lot of cups of coffee and a lot of times where you just have to say, you know, we're going to revisit this. Like, you don't have to solve it in one day. Yeah. But. That makes sense. Hey, what would you say is the hardest part of kind of managing all those pieces and, and doing it in a family kind of collective the way you do it? Making sure that every voice is heard. Um, making sure that every voice is fulfilled. At, um, and making sure that we we all have a part and all have a role. Um, so whether, even if you live two hours away, um, let's find a job that works for every individual so that self-efficacy and ownership is there. Um, doesn't have to be sweat equity. It can be, um, you know, maybe banked now for a plan after retirement, or maybe it's a financial input or, but it's all coming to the table and making sure that everyone's happy with whatever they're doing and whatever they're receiving. And so that really the human first part makes farming work. If all the humans are happy, farming works. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good model. <laughs> so, so, you know, beyond expanding out your, your herd, like what other plans do you have for your future and the farm? Um, expanding the beef. Um, in 2020, uh, I would like to purchase a new draft horse. Um, Pete is 15. I'd like to sell him before he gets to be 18 and start off the project again um, with another single horse, but I'd like to have Pete around for a two-year overlap for training. So that's coming up soon. The Christmas trees are every April, it's the hot button, and whether or not we're going to do that or not. Um, and then the canola is coming. Um, we really want to produce biodiesel. Uh, this year we're switching the evaporator, which we, which is where you boil the maple syrup or the arch, if you, you call it. Uh, we're switching that over to oil. Um, we're gonna run regular heating fuel this year, um, and then next year run our own homegrown biofuel, and so that will allow uh, those who are farming um, to continue farming later in life. It's an enormous amount of labor to cut and split and stack 18 cords of wood. Um, we were harvesting it ourselves. Now we're buying logs, sometimes paying help when it's the last minute. So it just doesn't make sense anymore. So if we can go to oil and then you can boil well into your 80s and 90s, um, and then you're trading two months worth of labor versus six hours, eight hours of tractor time, 
but still produced right there on the farm. Yeah. And now for, for somebody who's listening to this saying, yeah, you know, it'd be great if, if my family, if we all got together and tried to figure out a way to get a farm going, like what, what advice would you have for them? Uh, you know, the first thing is everybody has to sit down at the table, probably have two more beers than you regularly would have. <laughs> and then, uh, put down your dream first. Like you're not having a farm for yourself. You're not doing the hard work for your brother. You're not doing the hard work for your aunt. You're doing it for yourself. And so everyone has to put down their best, biggest intention and their dream. And then it totally independent of everybody else. And so when you all come together, you already have your dream written down and so that you're not allowing your dream to be manipulated by somebody else's. And so then when you take all those pieces of paper and you put them together, that common, whatever that common uh, goal is and that dream, um, then you're all working wholeheartedly towards it. The compromise has already happened. Um, far, far too often you see when people go into business together, it's somebody's doing, there's like a leader and somebody's doing it for that person. And then when that work, when it falls off and they no longer want to do it for that person, you know, then there's not somebody else to pick up. But if we're all, if you're all working for this, for, if you're working for yourself and your dream, um, you're going to stick with it much longer. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I really did. It's fun just to hang out in our living room for an hour with Tom and shoot the breeze as we recorded that one. Um, if you want to learn more about Tom and what he's doing on his farm, I will leave links to his website and Instagram page down in the show notes. Uh, just look for Foxfire Revival Farm. Um, and uh, yeah, check it out. It's, it's some really good stuff. And especially if you're in the Peachum area and you want to go on either a carriage ride uh, during the warmer months or a sleigh ride during the cooler months, uh, definitely reach out to Tom. It's, it's, it's a great experience and I, I highly recommend it. Um, and if you want to learn more about what we're doing here on our farm, uh, be sure to check us out on YouTube. It's a uh, Goldshaw farm. Um, like I said earlier, I actually did a video with Tom. So if you want to see him in action and see his farm in action, be sure to check out that video. It's pretty cool. Um, you can also uh, learn more about what we're doing here on our farm with our videos, uh, including, I'm not sure if you heard a little bit of barking in the background, but the, the newest addition to our farm, which is actually, he's helping uh, us keep the coyotes at bay. And I'll probably tell the story about what's going on with, with my new friend here uh, in a future episode. Um, and yeah, we will go from there. Uh, just a quick programming note, we are going to be off for the next two weeks for the end of the year, so... Uh, um, there won't be an episode released on Christmas or on New Year's, but we will be coming back strong immediately that following week. So, so stay tuned. Just be sure to subscribe to this podcast. So whether you're on Stitcher or iTunes or Google Play or, or Spotify, it'll just come up right automatically for you. So uh, be sure to hit subscribe and tell your friends and family just how awesome this podcast is over the next couple of weeks. Um, it'd be awesome just to keep adding uh, listeners. So with that, I will close out the show and close out the year. It's been a really good one. I'm really thankful that we've been able to get this show up off the ground this year. Um, you know, probably as I was thinking about my New Year's resolutions this time last year, 
starting a podcast was on the list and I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to pull it off and now we're up nearly up to I don't know I think it's about 40 episodes or so and so that's just been kind of cool <laughs> so I'm, I'm thankful for that and look forward to what 2020 has to bring and I will see you all guys uh, when, when that rolls around uh, with that I will ask my good friend uh, Mr. Keith Pierce to play our theme song and close out the show it's got a soul this hero farm it falls asleep inside my arms we work the fields under the stars the love is here at gold shop farms well, city life yeah had its charms but we would dream of the fields under the stars I fall asleep inside its arms Gold Shop Farms. The love is here at Gold Shop Farms.